Welcome to the Young IPA Podcast. I'm James. This is Pete. G'day, everyone. It is the 20th of May, and this is episode 110. We've mm. got the big election wrap-up show coming to you guys. We are going to be talking to Evan Mulholland. Third time over the campaign that he's come on the show, but every time he does, he gives us that sweet, sweet and excellent election analysis <laughs> that we need. Yeah. And uh, also, we're going to be talking to Tyler Cowan from Marginal Revolution, the great uh, economics blog. He's also the author of A Love Letter to Big Business, an American Anti-Hero. Uh, that's a huge interview mm. for us to get. So thanks so much to Tyler for coming on. We're going to be talking to him about the book, about America's relationship with big business, and of course, uh, you know what he's making of the election. Um, but Pete, we really should talk election because let me read a stat out for you at the start of the show. Ooh, so this is hard uh, evidence. Okay, so just before the election campaign started, News Poll had it at fifty-four to forty-six Labor. That is like two months ago, maybe less than a month ago. Yeah. What the hell happened? Well, that's that's incredible. Like Scott Morrison, for all the problems that we have with him, he is now in the absolute pantheon of liberal leaders. Like who would have seen this coming? Well, look, it was a, certainly a shock. No one said it was going to happen. I don't know what happened. That's a good question. Uh, we're going to ask Evan about that. Um, but yeah, crazy stuff. We are coming to you on a Monday as well. We should mention to the punters out yeah, there. Yeah, so if anything major has happened uh, over the Monday night break, uh, apologies for me and Pete not covering it. Maybe we'll jump on, but only if it's absolutely major Yeah. because uh, I'm going to be in Sydney. But yeah, Pete, so that is an out-of-control victory. Like literally no one saw this coming. I saw Sherry Markson on Twitter doing a victory lap from saying a week ago that it wasn't over yet. Like that that's where we're at. You can do a victory lap if you were a week ago saying it's not over. Well, like, I, no one is saying I, I called this. Apparently, and I'll get into this a little bit later because I don't want to give away one of my losers for this election, but uh, there was a um, internal polling by both parties thought it was going to be much closer than people were thinking people was going to be people thought it was going to be an ALP victory but apparently pollsters within both major parties thought it was going to be much closer but I don't think they thought it was going to be a massive victory for the coalition yeah so well we're going to get into this no cuz like we're going to get into winners and losers but I think we'll just jump out there cuz like polling is just does anyone know what to do anymore? Like, well, that's three in a row now. Like, no one saw Trump coming, no one saw Brexit winning, and now no one saw Scott Morrison winning the election. Like, do polling companies exist in five years? Like, what do we do? Well, there's, we've had PMs get get the knife because of polls. Yeah, exactly. And they're not accurate. Yeah. Like, if, if, he, if Morrison gets a few bad polls in a row and they start talking about his leadership, you'd just say... Polls are wrong. Yeah. Or, and, well, and, I just think, as like, we, we can jump, we can go back to polling for a second, but like, Scott Morrison can look down any election poll loss yeah. and just go, I can do that. You guys said that like, last 55, time. 55 45, Charles Play. Yeah, exactly. Watch me do it. Watch uh, me do it. Um, think I won't? Like, there's no one else. He can do whatever. He can get down to 39 and still think, you know, good campaign. I can save in it. That's right. And, and I, I don't know what is happening. Like, because I mean, I assume they go, who are you going to vote for? Yeah. And they say X. And even the exit polls are wrong. So you leave the so you leave the booth and yeah. say who you voted for. Yeah. Is it this real is it this silent Tory thing or like that could be it. And you know, just like the culture it is, you're much more likely to admit that you vote left than right these mm. days, but just it's wild. Like, uh, you know, do people just not answer the particular phones that they ring or do people just not get back to text messages? Like, unless they really are proud of who they vote for, I guess. Yeah. It's wild. But yeah, so back to the election thing. Like, it's a loss like that, and I know there's internal polling and it was like 59-41 on the leave of the election, but when you step back and just go, 
this was an unlosable, like, you know, everyone says like the John Hewson one was the unlosable election. This might even be bigger than the John Hewson one. Labor were steamrolling. They toppled Turnbull. Liberals were just like, all right, who can save us the most seats in the upcoming loss? And then they win. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's one of those things where it's like, it can't be just one thing that lost it. And, you know, people are talking about like the last week of the election campaign is like, does Scott Morrison believe gay people go to hell? Like, why is that the leading issue? And, you know, you also got like Labor's climate things. But I don't think all that can contribute to a loss that bad i don't know yeah look i don't know and this is stuff that will be talked about in the coming days out there in Weeks, the commentary months uh yeah i mean we've got like the new labor leader coming out uh, yeah exactly Who's so, that be? yeah everyone's going to be saying well what should have we what should we have done yeah everyone's going to have their own things but yeah just that is a wild result yeah and if you go back to the start of it when um you know there was so much uh what's the word what's the word antipathy in the electorate for the way they kept changing leaders yeah and there are all these um you know ministers and stuff jumping ship retiring and things like that yeah and it was just it was just meant to be a fait accompli but here we are that's yeah, democracy exactly. folks all right so we're going to be getting uh we're going to be talking to evan mulholland later in the show who is plugged into it so he can hopefully shed some light on it because me and pete are still reeling from it uh so but uh pete and i were watching the election coverage and we were, on my phone yeah pete was on his phone i was on sky news because i got to support dad um but we saw a fair few people that we would deem winners and losers from the election yes. uh, so I think we should run through who are the big winners uh, if I can start off Pete you kick things off mate uh, my first winner is everyone because now <laughs> you can go on YouTube for longer than 45 seconds without seeing Clive Palmer's face the, yep. uh, everyone can celebrate there are no more Clive Palmer ads. Well, I did. I would say, James, just we're in a uh, studio in North Fitzroy. As I drove here, there is a big billboard yep. that still has Clive Palmer's face on it. But presumably that'll switch over in the next few weeks back to a, you know, a, a betting ad. There something. is a slight chance that Clive Palmer just goes, you know what, I did like seeing me every, mm. <laughs> every ad break in the Oz Open. So, you know, there's no election coming up, but it could just be, how good's Clive Palmer? Yeah. A new advertising campaign. You've got to build the brand, James. Yeah, exactly. You've build the brand. You then- need more ads where he's slightly out of breath for some reason <laughs> well that was my thing. reason <laughs> but like just do another take like there, there are some where he's just clearly about to keel over for some reason well but my know. theory is they got him on a treadmill just before they recorded just so he'd be a bit more active look maybe but i think i think you know when clive says that takes a rap it's yeah. a rap <laughs> <laughs> this is one his, take clive. his tv show so. <laughs> send anyway. that out um so yeah that's my big winner is everyone no more clive palmer ads. okay well that's a good one i would say I, in my winners list, I've got the coalition. Um, <laughs> big call. That's a good big one. Big call. But um, my big winner from this election is John Roscombe. Yes. Because, as John Ros- has been noted by Paul Carp, who's a Guardian journal. Put yeah, this, this is starting to get out there. Like, Guardian commented on it. I think I saw a mention in The Australian as well. He said, John Roscombe basically made the case to me that Liberals needed a more out-of-suburban electoral strategy rather than winning the, the Liberal progressive inner-city seats. John said... Uh, that the Liberal Party was hopelessly conflicted on climate change and driven down the middle. He warned the party cannot appeal to both rich people virtue signalling because they can afford to um, and basically said Wentworth is not Australia and they should be appealing to voters in Longman who want lower power prices rather than uh, people in Wentworth who want emission reductions. And I think he's basically proven correct. Yeah, so this is uh, like a... a Bit of a global phenomenon, like the realignment of where you think left and right are. Yeah. And we talked about this with Brendan O'Neill last year, or this year, or sometime. Yeah. Uh, we talked about him in an indeterminate time mm. uh, in regards to Brexit, where you had the inner city and big city people say we should definitely stay in the EU, and you had the country people saying we should leave. I mean, who saw Trump carrying Philadelphia, like uh, Pennsylvania, and, um, you know, all those, like, rust, t- technically rust belt states, I guess? Uh, it just seems, yeah, like, 
it's now not so much left and right, it's rich and poor. Exactly right. And I, I would, it's taken, it feels like it's taken a gl- um, the left, the left establishment in most, most countries and a glacial time to adjust to that. Yeah. Like, I don't think the Democrats have adjusted to it. No. They, didn't, they haven't learned from the Trump victory. I don't think the ALP. Well, because Russia stole it. They don't need to acknowledge it. Okay, well, that's yeah. true. That's, give, them, give, them a, let's give them something for that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I don't think the ALP did it either. No. Uh, it's going to be interesting because, like, at the moment, we still don't quite know if the coalition has a majority, so maybe this is out of date by the time this episode goes live. I hope so. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it'll be interesting if they do need, like, Zali Stegall vote because mm. she campaigned on climate yeah but the coalition won main like in large part because queensland stuck with the coalition quite hard because of adani and because of power costs yeah. so like this is a huge moment for the coalition do you go with the rust belt like the working class that you've now got and abandon these climate principles or do you stick with zali stegel because you need that vote and continue with them well glad yeah. i'm not making that call because that's <laughs> that's a tough one well i mean i know what i would do but i don't know what's going to win an election i think the australia's the poorer for it james yeah, that yeah. you're not making i know that i know uh but yeah sorry i'm glad i'm a policy guy not a politics guy and i think you know zali stegel as well probably won a little bit on uh, certainly on climate but also as a bit of a protest vote against um you know tony abbott's perceived destabling of the party but yeah, um yeah. but yeah, but, like, but if, like she was saying climate 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 and yeah, like yep. this is a victory for climate and, and so I, I think it's mainly climate that she yep. would be pushing for yep and that's what she'd be that's what she'd be saying anyway all right i know i gave you crap for saying that one of your winners was a coalition but i noticed my next one was scott morrison but mainly because <laughs> <laughs> yeah well that was more what we were saying earlier in the show of just like there is now no opinion poll that he can he can't overcome like yeah he, yeah. he doesn't even get the email updates of what news polls doing on a Monday morning because he's just like, I've, like I can do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, uh, look, it's incredible. So my other big winner was my Facebook feed. I wouldn't call really? it as delicious as the Trump victory, um, but it was <laughs> yeah. pretty good. Yeah, uh, a lot of people calling for Queensland to be kicked out of Australia. Uh, yeah, yeah, which you know is just the rational way of doing things. Um, a lot of people just completely lost, mate, because I- other people had their say in a democracy yeah well that, that it's uh it's a terrible thing when people in the country don't agree with you yeah i actually put uh a social media one in my losers list which oh, i really? might as well jump to now yeah go ahead why is it a loser i put left-wing people on social media yep lots of swearing oh, lots of sooking yeah come on guys lots of throwing it's a family <laughs> twitter's a family service yeah lots of throwing toys out of the cot i'm not talking about necessarily um like activists and people in the commentariat just ordinary punters who i'm friends with who just yeah. seem to really crack it um, so based on that, not much of a good result for left-wing uh, people on social media. I would say, as you sort of alluded to, uh, not much of we need to realign and we need to reconnect with the people who used to vote for us. Yeah, A lot of Australians are cooked, Yeah, blow up Queensland. One I noticed um, was uh, Australia has voted for hate and division. Oh, like, was that? Genuinely, you reckon someone going in the polling booth and was like, hmm... I have love or I have hate, mm. and I'm going to go with hate. What this country needs is a little more division. <laughs> a little more division, a little more hatred, a little more lost hope. Yeah. Like, if you genuinely believe that's what people go into a polling booth to do, you're never going to win an election. I, I think like, you are not going to appeal to people's virtuous side. So, look, they were in. They were on my loser side based on that. But, um, yeah, look, social media are always, always a good thing after. Yeah. Do you have any honest. more winners? Because I'm out. 
I didn't. I had Coalition and John Roscoe. Yeah, okay. Because, like, we got to say, like, uh, as much as this isn't a win for the Liberals, like, there's a lot of people with egg on their face this morning because that result came out of nowhere. So. Yeah. And Pete and I also like laughing at people. So, yeah. obviously, our losers list is going to be a bit more populated than our winners list. That's the kind of people we are. <laughs> yeah, we're tall poppy syndrome. We should really name, rename the podcast that. All right, so. That um, would be good, actually. All right, my big loser is uh, Oliver Yates would be my number oh. one loser. Oh, that so what happened? Out. Well, he fizzled out quite. I think he finished fourth. Yep. Uh, I think, sorry, Josh Frydenberg stormed home. That mm. wasn't even slightly close. Okay. Uh, Julian oh. Burnside was second. And then I think it was, um, yeah, uh, yeah. So Oliver Yates finishes fourth. Um, so maybe a big winner could be the Murdoch Press because their press license stays. Because yep. uh, if Oliver Yates got in, he was going to remove their non existent press license. That's right. So sorry, maybe we could have passed that off as a winner. But yeah, Oliver Yates, um, yeah, sucks. Yeah. <laughs> like, What's yeah. Oliver Yates' day job? Uh, I don't know. Um, he, I would find a way to monetize complaining on Twitter. Yep. Uh, he seems to be quite good at that. Uh, if he can find a way to make that his job description, go at it. Um, but yeah, certainly that is an absolute fizzle out of a campaign. Well, I've just sort of realized that one of the people I should have put on my losers list based on what you just told me was Julian Burnside. Um, but it's not on the list, so... No. <laughs> it's too late. So it is too late, but... Connected to that, one of my losers was the great climate election. Yes. This was the election where the Australian people were going to tell their rulers that climate was very important to them and vote accordingly. Um, as they wrote in The Guardian, I've got a Guardian in this week's episode, uh, earlier last week in an editorial telling people who to vote for, the climate emergency is the most pressing issue of our time for decades. Australia has seen the existential crisis looming and has failed to act on it. Um the coalition appears deaf to the rising clamour from the electorate. Yeah. Someone's deaf to the rising clamour. I don't think it was the coalition and I don't think it was about the climate. Yeah. So, well, there's two ways of looking at that. Like, maybe it was actually the climate election. Yeah. And they lost. Yeah. Like, it's not. It's no longer Australia's greatest moral challenge. So, maybe I should put it in the winner's list. Yeah. Well, like, it, it's it's open for interpretation. But, yeah, definitely people... Like, the Greens said it was a climate election. Mm. Labor were pushing climate policies, climate policies, climate policies. Yep. And Australians didn't vote for them. Oh, this idea that like Australians want action on climate change, it's like, have you met anyone that doesn't live in the inner city? No, they it's haven't. That's the problem. Like the best Petut, like the Petut Advocate were on fire on Saturday night. And the best yeah. one I saw was like, uh, you know, vegan protesters starting to realise the farm raids didn't play north of Fitzroy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, people didn't like that. Unbelievable. Yeah. I, on the Potato Advocate, as um, as you mentioned there, one, the night watchman finished the day on 201 Not Out was yeah, pretty shout good. Shout out to Dizzy Gillespie. And... Uh, it was very funny. Yeah. A, a lot of our losers list have quickly become winners. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, that's wild. Okay. This is a definite loser. There is no way you can play this off as a winner. Uh, sports bet. That oh. is a massive loser in this election they campaign. They are in my list as on well. On Thursday, if you guys didn't know, sports bet paid out every single bet that anyone put on Labor to win the election. Why do they do and that? And I don't know if you know, but Labor did not win the election. So, they've had to pay out both sides. News just That did. is millions of dollars down the drain for sports bet. They did it because, like, I... When I, uh, you know, they they pay out on stuff that's definitely going to win so mm. that people get their winnings and just go, well, this is free money and they reinvest in something else and to do with the is election. Is that why they do it? Yeah, okay. like when Dusty, uh, Dustin Martin, <laughs> sorry. Dustin! The great man, Dusty. <laughs> uh, when Dustin Martin won the Brownlow, they paid it out early to get everyone who'd put money on Dustin over the year to like start going, well, which which ones are going to pull three votes in? Yeah. So like, that's what they do, but okay. just... 
You don't want to be that guy. Like, again, we're recording this on Monday. There is someone at Sportsbet HQ who is looking through his polling figures going, but, it, but, 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 but. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but Sarah told me that Malay would win. The, the final poll before yeah. the election was 51-49 I AOP. think they'd already paid out by that point. Yeah, they paid Surely out that's Thursday. when um, the sweat beads start appearing on people's brows. Can I read you some of the statement that they put out? Yeah. So Sportsbet, Sportsbet punters have declared Sunday's federal election run and won. They handed out $1.3 million. Sportsbed wrote, uh, Labor have attracted several large wages, including one savvy punter who walks away with a, over 128000 before a vote has been counted. They are pretty glad they paid them out early. Yep. And they said, punters rarely get it wrong on elections. Sportsbet's markets currently suggest Labor win 82 seats and the coalition 63. Oof. Punters rarely get it wrong. Yeah. Man. Why is that? companies are gone. <laughs> like, uh, I saw one, so maybe... I don't know if he put it with Sportsbet and he got paid out, but I did see one bloke put a million dollars on Labor to win. How bad was that guy Saturday night? Well, he should have a bet with Sportsbet. A million dollars. Yeah. I think he put it on when they were $1.13. So he was only going to win 13... Wait, what is that? 130 Yeah, so know. he's going to win a fair bit of money. But yeah. Like, that... You know, that is, that's a rough day. That is a terrible day. A million dollars. I guess if he's got a million dollars to put on stuff, maybe yeah. he's had other wins. I... Speaking of betting, so I was watching the Sky News coverage mm-hmm. and I was just following along the odds and just seeing the coalition sort of trickle down. And yeah. then at $3, they were at $3 at the same time that Nicholas Reese on Sky News just goes, Labor's lost. And if yeah. anyone would know, it would be Nicholas Reese. So I was just like, let's jump on now. But yeah. I only, you know, I didn't put as much money as I should have. I only put $20 on. <laughs> Why didn't I put my entire life savings? Oh, because you thought that maybe there's still a chance. I was just like, you know, the principle of never bet more than you'd be annoyed at if you lost, mm. but I should have gone harder. Well, you knew you were going to win, James. Yeah. No, I, yeah, sorry? You knew they were going to win. Yeah, but I only put $20 on. Why didn't I put, why didn't I put everything? I anyway. think I think next the rule is next time you're <laughs> thinking about punting on something, yeah. you should... Just should put all my life savings, <laughs> and then next week Pete's just recording with someone else because I'm in the Bahamas. But you'll, yeah, exactly. That's yeah, I'll true. never lose again. Uh, that's the big thing. All right, do you have a loser? Because uh, I've got three more. Yeah, well, let's do pollsters. Um, I know we t- spoke about it earlier, but I just want to go into a little bit more detail. Uh, in the past two years, leading up to last night's election or Saturday night's election, the coalition didn't win a single a single news poll in two years. Yeah. Uh, even as late as Friday night, uh, they all had them. Uh, Labor had fifty-one to forty-nine on the two-party preferred vote. Exit polls are meant to be more accurate. The exit polls were also wrong with uh, YouGov Galaxy exit poll reporting a, a decisive ALP victory with a swing away from the government of 2.4%. So what is that? Is that just people walking out and lying about who they voted well, for? Well, that's what we said earlier in the show. Is oh, like yeah. Do people <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we did talk about that earlier. <laughs> Good um, to know you're listening to yourself as you speak. Sometimes but. it's hard to know what we recorded and what we were actually just talking about. But yeah, okay. No, so let's not go over that again. Too soon. Um all right, uh, I've got a, another loser here. So similar to Oliver Yates, big loser for me, Rob Oakshot, or maybe the renewables industry as a whole, because Rob Oakshot, of course, a fan of 100% renewables. Really? Uh, so he went down pretty hard as well. I don't know how a 100% renewable energy campaign didn't go down well in Cowper. That's surprising. Um, but yeah, Rob Oakshot gone. And I suppose like, because I've got a fair few losers here, I'll just combine two of them together. Yep. Get Up took a massive loss. Like the, the actual figure on how much money they spent trying to topple over the coalition in those seats that they targeted, you know, there's a lot of like how much money was actually spent and where was this money coming from. But to only get one of the five is Mm. very embarrassing. Well, like, I I mean, they took down a former prime minister credit to who is now, you know, he's now a backbencher though. Like you didn't get Frydenberg. You didn't get, uh, you know, you didn't topple Higgins. You didn't topple Cowper. You're like Greg Hunt's still there. 
That's a massive loss for GetUp. How much money got spent for very little results? I don't know. Yeah. That's a good question. <laughs> no, how much money, B? Put a number <laughs> on it. Uh, yeah, Heaps. we're going to be, that was one of, so we're going to be talking to Evan later in the show. That was one of his predictions was that the teal independents were going to fizzle out, which, you know, apart from Zali Stickle, they did. So mm-hmm. we'll get Evan's predictions on, uh, sorry, Evan's take on that. But yep. yeah, get up to a massive loss. That is a lot of money down the drain. All right. I've got one more loser. So do you have any? No, nah, that's All it, right, mate. So my last loser. What? Well, this is a bit divisive because some people would play it as a winner. I didn't like it. But on Channel 9, they had Julie Bishop in the coverage. And any time that a sitting member were, uh, you know, when like a seat was called and a sitting member had lost that seat, they were given the Bish boot. So there was like this giant, uh, you know, like it was like a hologram. But instead of it being Tupac delivering a song, it was like a hologram of a giant boot. uh, Or like ladies heel, I guess, or just some sort of shoe. Yeah. And uh, the... You know, the person who lost their seat comes up and a shoe just kicks them out of the studio. Okay. I didn't like that. Was it both? It was very cringeworthy. Was it all seats? Uh, I was watching Sky News coverage, but whenever someone lost a seat or they were sitting in there and they got the boot, so to speak, they get booted out. Didn't like it. It's it's very cringe. Like (laughs) you spend that much money on a hologram and you're like, look, we've got this state of the art thing. We've got this big studio. We've got Julie Bishop here. How do we spend our money? A big boot. Well, I can just imagine the meeting where that one was uh, ticked off on. Yeah. At, down at Channel 9, did you say? Yeah. And, um, you know, maybe it was Clive Palmer who thought of it and no one <laughs> wanted to disagree with him. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. Look, I'm not really to pass judgment, James. I haven't seen it, but I'll have a look at it and get back to you. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. We're available on all good podcast platforms, as is the IPA's Looking Forward podcast. So make sure you're downloading and subscribing to both. And if you are listening through Apple Podcasts, make sure you leave us a five-star review because that really helps us bring both podcasts to new people. Uh, so over on ipa.org.au, uh, we have a few articles that you guys can read. Uh, the first and probably most important is that the IPA has a new chairman, which we're extremely excited about. I mean, obviously, we're very sad to see Rod Kemp go. He was a great guy and a great chairman for the Institute of Public Affairs. Uh, hopefully, you know, he's still around. But um, so, Janet Albrecht and Laurie, extremely exciting. Have her on the show soon to talk about it. Uh, that's awesome. So, you can read uh, a message to, uh, sorry, a message by Rod Kemp to the IPA members. That's available at ipa.org.au. You're just talking about his time at the Institute of Public Affairs and why he's so excited to hand over the reins to Janet Albrechtson. And you've also got, you know, it's a bit out of date now, but certainly uh, it's still poignant, is John Roskam's last column before the election campaign talking about how uh, the sun is setting over decades of free market economics because free markets were just something not brought up in this campaign. Mm. So you can go over to ipa.org.au and read those. Uh, and finally, if you are, uh, if you'd like to become a member of the IPA, make sure you're heading over to ipa.org.au slash join. You can join on any one of our programs that we offer. Uh, just become a part of Australia's largest free market think tank and make sure you're standing up for freedom. And if you are already a member and you want to donate, you can also go to ipa.org.au and donate. Also, James, we shouldn't forget that if you are going to the Freeman Conference in Sydney next week, the Looking Forward podcast, the IPA's other podcast, is doing a live podcast from the Freedman Conference, 1.30pm on Friday the 25th of May at Aerial UTS Function Centre. It will be featuring Chris Berg, Scott Hargraves, Renee Gorman and Executive Director of the IPA, John Roskam, talking about what does freedom look like in 2050. So if you are going to the conference, get along to that. And if you want to go to the conference but you haven't got a ticket yet, jump on the website straight away because they are selling fast. All right, let's go to the interviews. Okay, we are now joined by Tyler Cowan. Really looking forward to this interview. Tyler Cowan from George Mason University 
and from Marginal Revolution, a fantastic blog that everyone should be or, uh, reading if they're not already doing so. And he's also author of such great books as The Complacent Class, The Great Stagnation, and his most recent book, which we're going to be talking about, Big Business, A Love Letter to an American Anti-Hero. Tyler, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me on. All right, brilliant. So in this new book, uh, you claim that we don't love business enough. So why, uh, why don't we love business enough and why should we? There's a recent tendency to villainize big business and American politics. So you have Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, two Democratic presidential candidates, talking about splitting up big companies and the big tech companies. You also have President Trump, who loves to tweet against American CEOs and pick on them and basically say they're ruining the country. I think in an age of social media, we've become perhaps too cynical about many things. We judge business by the wrong standards. It's a scapegoat we blame for many of our problems. And in this book, I just tried to set out some of the basic facts about American big business. It produces things, it innovates, it gives us jobs. A lot of the criticisms of it are way overblown. Tyler, I... Tyler, I think a lot of people understand that uh, big businesses create jobs and that they produce a lot of things that people buy. One thing that I think big people don't realize about big business is that they actually are great innovators. Why don't you talk about that for a second? Well, big business has a lot of capacities which small business does not. Uh, it tends to pay higher wages. Uh, it has far greater ability to command logistics. If you look at some of the best-known American big businesses today, for instance, Amazon, well, it started by selling us books. Now it's number one in cloud computing services. In terms of developing logistics using robots in the workplace, Amazon has been a leading company. Uh, Google, now relabeled Alphabet as the conglomerate, has been a major developer of driverless vehicles. Uh, YouTube got so much better because you, Google put a lot of money into it, so you don't have to buffer your videos anymore. Facebook is working on artificial intelligence and was a pioneer in mobile advertising. So clusters of talent seem to matter more than ever before for innovation, and big business is very good for assembling them. Uh, let's talk about young people. So we talked about how Elizabeth Warren and Donald Trump are uh, you know, spreading distrust of big business, but young people in particular seem to be suspicious of big business, only 42% of whom uh, support capitalism. So why do you think this suspicion is particularly prevalent amongst young people? If you poll young Americans, I'm not sure how it is in Australia, uh, but in many polls, more of them will express a sympathy for socialism than capitalism, even though they lead fairly capitalistic lives. So I think that's an example of how uh, business is acquiring a bad reputation and there's this you know, halo over government, even though we have now one of the most irresponsible governments we've had at the federal level in my lifetime. Uh, so the intellectual and ideological climates are shifting. And I think you know, we're quite distant now from the history of communism. People have forgotten that. And there's simply a sense that socialism is something cool. Speaking of young people, um, everyone is both terrified of social media giants knowing everything about them, and yet uh, many young people also broadcast literally every part of their lives. What explains that dichotomy? Well, I think the main violators of your privacy in most people's lives are your friends, acquaintances, and colleagues. And people instinctively know this. Facebook is not actually going to take that zip file it has on you and, you know, send it to potential employers or use it to ruin you. Uh, that is not their business incentive. 
So your friends and people you know say at school or at work, they gossip about you all the time. Some of that is pretty <laughs> vicious. So I think it's actually common sense that we, in practice, trust social media companies a fair amount. Uh, the main critics of Facebook, I found, are newspapers who are major competitors of Facebook. Uh, I think there's the hostility in business in America is strongly concentrated in the intellectual class and media and not so much ordinary Americans who simply use the services of business. I'm also one of those guys that thinks like, okay, Facebook isn't actually going to use my data against me, but surely there is some nervous stuff where you're talking about something in conversation for once and suddenly an ad pops up on your phone. Or I remember I was just like in uh, my car at a place I hadn't been for two and a half years and it said previous journey was to this destination. It'll take you two hours to get there now and it just want to make me throw my phone out a window. So do you have any moments like that where you're just like, oh, this is getting a whole pretty intense well i try to stick with social media where ads are at a minimum so i spend more time on twitter than facebook occasionally i see a sponsored tweet uh whatsapp and other messaging services which are you know very often ad free i find more useful uh than ad laden services so there's plenty of choice there and if the ads bother you uh it's not that hard to get around them in fact recently big business have become more interested in social issues perhaps than they were previously. What's your take on that? Do you think that helps people uh, support big business more or do you think it turns people off a little bit? Uh, An example of that would be uh, same-sex partner benefits where big business pioneered that in advance of our government uh, legalizing gay marriage. Uh, I think that's helped big business a bit, but people take it for granted and they view it as a kind of entitlement, which, you know, Maybe that's the correct way to view it, but still, the groups that were the pioneers should get more credit for that than they have. And the overall incentive of most big businesses is that, you know, their employees get along and they can sell to the broadest and biggest market possible. So big businesses are natural cosmopolitans. They tend to be pretty sympathetic on immigration and free trade. And all of those are beneficial influences, uh, which we mostly neglect. So we'll hop off uh, your book uh, just after this question, but obviously with the, the title uh, as it is, Big Business, A Love Letter to an American Anti-Hero, uh, that does make you sound like, um, you know, some, some people might disagree with that. How has the reaction been to your book so far? Uh, it's gotten an enormous amount of media attention, uh, some reviews sort of respectful but critical and distanced, uh, some wildly positive. Uh, some circles are ignoring it. So I think it's having an impact, but a lot of people don't know what to make of the book. So I'm not saying business is always correct or that, you know, we should have laissez-faire. I'm just saying if you look at actual facts, many of the criticisms of business are overblown. So I've tried very hard not to make it an exaggerated book. It's a very factual book. Uh, There's plenty of things where business has been corrupt or deserves to be punished for breaking the law. And I'm very open about that. And I think a lot of people, they're not quite sure what to latch on to, to, you know, attack it and drive it into the ground. All right, let's, uh, let's change tax slightly. One of the things that's really interesting to me about your work is on how free markets can change culture for the better. We often hear that globalization, for example, destroys local cultures. You take a different view. How do, you, how do free markets change culture for the better? Well, if you look at, say, indigenous producers of the arts uh, in Latin America, which I know best, but also in Australia, there's a long history of selling to outside markets, right, and cultivating buyers and keeping traditions alive because there's a market of some sort for doing these arts. Uh, Aboriginal painting 
uh, in an Australian context. Or if you look at the singer uh, Guramal, Australian, uh, from the, you know, the islands, uh, you know, here in the United States, in the state of Virginia, we own, I think, six Guramal CDs. So for people to preserve traditions, there does need to be some money in it. And that often involves selling to other countries and advertising, having websites. And in those ways, globalization reinforces, strengthens, or helps us build upon earlier traditions. It doesn't just destroy them by any means. Also, what about free free markets? Um, I've read in various studies uh, make people trust each other because we have to uh, trade with each other and we have to exchange. Would, would that be something you agree with, that we, free markets actually make us treat each other better as well as simply being yeah. good for the economy? Uh, the high trust societies in today's world tend to be pretty capitalistic Socialist economies uh, tend to be much lower trust, and they leave a long legacy of low trust. Uh, there's also a study I cite in my book. Again, it's only one study. It doesn't prove anything. But if you have people into a, a laboratory and play these games of cooperation, the group of people who cooperated the most actually were the CEOs. I want to bring up Donald Trump. So you have uh, been quite critical of him in the past, especially the trade policy. So what are the major flaws of these policies and what are going to be the impacts for Americans and uh, not only Americans, but the rest of the world? Trump uh, has alienated our allies by being unreliable and insulting them. I think that has been a big negative. He did finally renegotiate NAFTA, which was better than not doing it doing it at all, but at great cost to our relationship with Canada. Threatening the automobile tariffs against Europe, I think, has contributed to breaking down the Western alliance. Uh, China, I view as a different matter. I think there's a very real issue there. We need in some way to push back against China, but it's not being done with the competence and execution and attention to detail that it requires. It's not getting our allies on board, and I fear the current trade war will simply escalate and make things worse without getting us so much in return. Yeah. Uh, that said, some people I know, I don't think Trump is the end of the world. I think we will survive it, and America will continue. Uh, but there are many things going on I'm unhappy about. Yeah, I'm completely with you. I think both sides uh, sort of um, take Trump away too far in their own direction. But I want to talk about that trade deal because like, for me and Pete, we're free market guys. We, when we hear trade deals and we hear tariffs, all we hear is like, this is going to be a tax on the American people. But I just found it interesting that you said that China is a different beast to Europe, to Canada. So what do you think should be the path forward? Well, I think it's a national security issue and it's mostly geopolitics. I mean, the economics of tariffs on China, they're still bad for America. None, none of that has changed. Uh, but when you have some kind of global power rivalry, not everything is about economics. But that said, I don't think America right now has the administrative capability to effectively fight and win a trade war. So I think we'd like to look for a way to de-escalate at this point. But I think it's a little different. Like there is some reason why China is a threat also to Australia. And we need to heed that in some manner. It doesn't mean the current trade war is a good idea. Is there anything, uh, is there anyone in the 2020 presidential race that you think might be more equipped to handle the China problem from what you've seen so far? Uh, it's hard to say. So there's a chance that Joseph Biden, because of his eight years of experience in the Obama administration and his you know, predictable reputation, would be better at building alliances than Trump has been. Uh, that's possible, but it's very hard to predict a lot of presidencies. Uh, overall, uh, I'm not very happy with the, the whole slate of candidates, 
and I don't expect to be happy at the end of the process. So, Tyler, it seems like you're quite an optimistic commentator. You spend a lot of time explaining why things aren't as bad as some other people like to say they are. Uh, are you optimistic about the future? And if so, why? Well, for most countries, I'm quite optimistic. Uh, for most or maybe all of the West, for Australia, uh, global growth right now is pretty steadily between 3 and 4%. And if you just play out that logic, that means you know each year we get a much better world. Social indicators around the world are improving. There are always big challenges, but if you had to pick the challenges of any point in time, like in all of world history, I think sort of the challenges of the last 10 years actually seem to be the most manageable. And we tend to overly focus on the negative. Social media make the negative more salient. It's pushed in front of our faces every day. And I think people overreact a bit too much to that. Yeah, absolutely. And this sort of brings up because we talked earlier in the show about how uh, young people are really attracted to socialism, despite the fact that they lead capitalist lives. And it's sort of that disconnect between seeing the good around them and just still pining out for socialism, which has you know, caused a lot of damage in the past. So how do you think uh, we can talk to young people about freedom? We can talk to young people about the benefits of free markets and globalization. Uh, right now, we're losing with young people, at least in the United States. I've only been twice to Australia and not recently. Uh, universities are not capitalistic environments, I'm sorry to say. And I think in many ways, that's a pernicious influence. So personally, I try to work within universities just to make people more open-minded, more tolerant. Uh, I guess I actually believe in the long run, common sense will win out. Not that everyone will agree with me, but that nothing too terrible will happen. Uh, but right now, I just see a lot of movement in the wrong direction. And uh, so many of these spokespeople for market-oriented ideas tend to be older or more establishment. And what's winning over, like hearts and minds of the young, are some of the right-wing ideas I'm not so crazy about, such as a certain kind of hostility to immigration. Uh, so just kind of in the micro level right now, that all seems pretty bleak to me. Right, yeah, because um, obviously with the rise of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, it's a huge, like, she's so incredibly popular with young people at the moment and is pushing pushing mm -hmm. some ideas that, you know, we'd find pretty horrific. But I, I find it also interesting that, like, the biggest proponent for basic, like, you know, quote-unquote socialism in the US is Bernie Sanders, who isn't exactly the youngest person in the world. Um, anyway, I want to talk to you about Marginal Revolution, which is such a fantastic blog. Peter and I read it often. We feature it a lot in some of our... Uh, newsletters. What do you put the success of Marginal Revolution down to? Uh, persistence. So we've, well, I personally have blogged every day for 16 years. So every day people know there'll be something on the site. Uh, I try to make it new and interesting. I realize that I'm often more of an editor than a writer, and I'm happy with that. A lot of people who blog, it's just all about me, me, me. And no one is that interesting every day, you know, four or five posts a day. But if you view it as producing a kind of magazine and sometimes interjecting your own opinions, uh, I think that can succeed. And just staying at it, uh, the returns to having a long time horizon and always trying to improve what you're doing, uh, people underestimate that. It's a kind of compound return to your own learning. That's an interesting point uh, looking at it, Tyler. We we always thinking about how we're going to spread freedom here at the IPA and and with young people. Uh, would you is that what it is about? Just keep going and going and going over a long period of time because you're obviously an expert at using technology to reach young people uh, in your field. 
Well, I'm not sure we have a choice, right? So you keep going, going, going. Obviously, one does believe one's own ideas have some merit or we, we wouldn't be doing it. I would say don't get you know too depressed or down at momentary reversals. Understand there are returns to quality in the longer run. And, uh, you know, sort of act and write with integrity and authenticity. And I think there will be returns. I mean, that's part of my basic optimism. But I get that, you know, not every day or every year does it always look so great. I like that. There's a recurring theme here of just uh, keeping on going, keeping on going. So I guess that brings us to our last question. So I know you've just released a book. Obviously, you're doing a whole lot of interviews and media for it. Uh, so what would be next for Tyler Cowen after this? Is there another big book on the horizon that you're putting your mind to, or uh, we're just going to put this one to bed at the moment? Uh, there's nothing pending, nothing soon, but I am becoming uh, increasingly interested in the issue of talent search and how it is we find talented people and what does social science know about talent and how to find it. So I'm at least exploring that topic. Uh, but the next book seems to be right now pretty far away. So, Tyler, we know that you're working on a new project called Emergent Ventures, uh, which is focused on young people. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Emergent Ventures is a charitable project where I am the grant giver. And the idea is to cut the bureaucracy out of grant giving and foundations and philanthropy. So people who apply, they submit a 1,500-word proposal for some kind of new idea or project or just investing in their talent. And uh, then we have a fund of money to give out to people who are ambitious and creative and maybe will make a difference in the world. So any of you out there, if you're interested, I would encourage you just to Google Emergent Ventures and you can read more about what we're, we're about. Yeah, that sounds absolutely fantastic. Definitely get involved with that for our listeners out there. Uh, just before okay. you go, uh, your book, An Economist Gets Lunch was yes. awesome by the way i just wanted to say oh, that because you. uh yeah just the tips that are in that book have just absolutely led me for the last seven or eight years whenever i go get food and you live in such a wonderful food country oh yeah really because i find it it's a lot easier when i'm traveling abroad like in europe it absolutely cleans up because uh, like my favorite tip in that is just like uh if you can see people from the country that you're trying to eat in there like that is going to be a good restaurant and when you're overseas if you see tourists in a place like i'm running in the other direction where everyone else is like oh yeah. this seems nice that's good i you know melbourne is fantastic food i think sydney i've never been elsewhere but uh australians are lucky so tyler cowan the author of the new book big business a love letter to an american anti-hero and from the absolutely excellent Marginal Revolution blog. Honestly, if you don't already read that, go out and read it. It is fantastic. Uh, Tyler, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you both for your time. Okay, we now welcome back onto the show what has become quick, quite quickly the most recurring segment in this podcast, uh, the Director of Communications, Evan Mulholland, here to wrap up the election campaign. So we've already had a lot of election chat, but Evan, first off, welcome back to the show. Thanks and for having me. And what, like, what, what, what happened? It's, what happened? It is our Trump moment. It is our Brexit moment. It is our New Zealand national flag moment. Um, in, in terms of nobody saw it coming, all the media, all the press gallery, all of Twitter, uh, all of the commentary had said this is going to be a Labor win. Um, throughout the campaign, the coalition had consistent messaging, uh, you know, a small target, consistent messaging, uh, whereas Labor had a big agenda. There was a lot of things to poke holes in. Um, and the coalition cut through. 
while every single poll since the 2016 election had the government losing, uh, it somehow managed to win. And it managed to win in outer suburban seats, in regional seats, uh, particularly in mining seats. There was upwards of 10% swings in mining seats. And I think that goes a lot to show about the debate around Adani and climate change, maybe around Ultimo and the ABC, you know, climate change is a massive issue. But when you get out to regional areas where their jobs reliant on coal, uh, it's a much different story. Was that the single biggest issue, the climate change thing? I don't think so. I think a huge issue was the reti- what's now called the retiree tax, the franking credits issue. Um, over 65s were recorded having um, over 10% swings against labour. Um, and, you know, those, those over 65s with franking credits, they've got children, they've got friends, and so it became an that attack nice. on... It, it it became an attack on all retirees. So Labor knew this, and that's why they bought out this policy to give free dental care to pensioners or something That'll like that. Um, and they thought we that, took your money, that, but that, your teeth look okay. <laughs> they thought they would put a bandaid over it, but it clearly didn't. Yep. Um, negative gearing was a big one. A lot of big negative gearing seats uh, voted strongly against uh, Labor, which didn't have they had the same policy at twenty sixteen election. Um, but it wasn't targeted as much in the media by then the Turbul government. This time, you know, real estate industry is on board. Um, there's a lot of people speaking about it, and the coalition spoke about it nonstop. So we've talked about it earlier in the show, uh, John Roskam in particular, but also Daniel Wild from the IPA have been talking about how Liberal has to position itself as a party for the workers. Is that what happened? It was, and, and you saw this throughout the campaign where Bill Shorten would go on to um, work sites with tradies and, you know, go out to shake their hands. And there was one uh, point where a tradie just refused to shake Shorten's hand and it left him looking a bit awkward. There was another time where the tradie goes, look, my my workers here at the site earn over $200,000 a year because we work night shifts, but we're workers. Like, are you going to um, – we're going to have a tax cut as well. And Bill Shorten just said, well, well I'll look at that even though his stated policy was to increase taxes for people earning over $200,000. So that was another slip up. Uh, he just looked awkward around the working class. And working class, you know, the, 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 in terms of the tradies, a lot of tradies are small business owners. Um, you know, there's around 10% union membership. So they're not, not all automatically going to vote Labor. And especially when, you know, the salaries are around middle to upper class, it's, it's hard to... Uh, have an offering from Labor Party when they're just looking at people that are earning under $90,000 a year. Yeah. All right. So I think I've you've already kind of given your answer to this one, but would you classify this as a coalition win or a Labor loss or a bit of both? I think I think it can be a coalition win. I think it is a coalition win. I think it's the fact that, that Scott Morrison's messaging was so targeted. Yes, it was attacking Labor. Yes, Labor lost the unlosable election, but the Liberal Party... Um, uh, caused that to happen. Uh, the Liberal Party was um, strict in its messaging. You had uh, credit goes to Treasurer Josh Frydenberg. Over summer, when everyone you know tuned out, everyone went on holiday, he was writing some, something like two op-eds a day in the newspapers talking about the franking credits issue and talking about uh, negative gearing and talking about Labor's taxes, $387 billion of new taxes on the economy, so much so that everyone knew that $387 billion number. Everyone knew about negative gearing and, and devaluing uh, the price of your home and everyone knew about how Labor was coming for, for retirees. So um, the strict messaging, I mean, it, it goes towards that win, um, but it, you know, Labor lost the unlosable election. Yeah. 
All right, let's talk about the night itself for you. So where were you and when did you realise that Liberals might be on? So I was actually handing out in Kooyong uh, in the afternoon. I did what I said last week. I went to the footy in the yeah. middle of the day. I left at three-quarter time. Because yeah, fair Saints enough. So did the going. Saints, actually. Yeah, <laughs> they did too. They yeah. came they really a goal down. <laughs> I know. Um, but then didn't do, do too well. Um, I was in Corwell in the morning out in Craigieburn, not the uh, nicest of Liberal areas. Uh, I think it's the safest Labor seat out there, but um, helping a, a friend who was a candidate. And in the afternoon, I was in Kooyong in Hawthorne, um, which was all right. There was a lot of greenies out there. I think it, it, both the Australian Conservation Foundation and Get Up had people handing out, as well as this independent and all these other things. So I was actually scrutineering when I could see the results coming in on Twitter. Um, I was scrutineering the own, uh, our own booth, which went okay, but... I was looking on Twitter and all of a sudden the Liberal Party is looking ahead in seats like Bass, like Braddon in Tasmania, like Macquarie, uh, I think, uh, which we might just get there, but I think Labor might pop ahead. But seats like Lindsay, Reid, Herbert, and, and we're actually taking seats off Labor and holding our own marginals. And that's when I thought, wow, we might just win this, yeah. uh, but it's going to be close. And it's, if Labor end up winning, it's not going to be anywhere near the victory they thought they'd have. Yeah, because I was watching the Sky News coverage at home, and every time they crossed to, I think it was Nicholas Reese and Kieran Gilbert who were at the Labor HQ. And like it started out, everyone was having a pretty good time, a lot of balloons. And every time they crossed back, it just like the room was sadder and sadder, and you could hear less things behind them. And the Liberals would be really starting to pick up. Yeah, and and then at 8.30, it was basically like, yeah, the Lib- like, you know, it obviously, like, it still hasn't been. A majority, mm. but at eight thirty, it just seems to be. I don't see how Labor can win from here. Yeah, it, it, because they were uh, the, their spinners were trying to send messages throughout the night, like Labor will probably win, but might need a couple of independents and the Greens. And then it looked like even with the combined Greens and independents, they weren't going to get there in their own right. Yeah, and that's because the Liberal Party, uh, for much as the Labor spin doctors were basically telling the entire press gallery who bought it hook, line, and sinker um, during the election that. Victoria was going to be a replication of the state election, that people had their baseball bats out and the Liberal Party was going to lose a swag of seats. The Liberal Party lost Karangamite and Dunkley because of the fact that they were made notionally Labor seats in a um, redistribution. Yeah. So they were already Labor seats. Um, they won both of those. But the Liberal Party is looking is ahead in Chisholm at the moment. Um, I don't want to preempt it, but that we're, we're ahead on counting by like 200 and something votes. Um, and the Liberal Party held in Latrobe and Deakin, which the union movement, the Labor Party, poured mil- hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of dollars into. Yet, out of suburbia in Melbourne, were were supportive of Scomo. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right. So, what I want to ask is, like, all right. So, we don't have a majority yet. We don't quite know what's going to happen. Uh, and it does look like the coalition are going to need Zali Stegall on board. But, like, we were talking about this earlier in the show. There's the upcoming. Uh, question they're going to have to decide is what's their climate policy look like if you need Zali Stegel, but also you won because there was a whole lot of working class people that voted for you that weren't exactly on board with Labor's climate policies. So what do you reckon is going to happen with all that? Yeah, look, I think the coalition um, it can't afford to be pragmatic on this. Um, I, I actually dis- uh, disagree with the point. I don't think they're going to have to rely on Zali Stegall or in any other independents. I think they'll get about 76 to 78 seats. Oh, wow. Um, so they'll they'll be able to have a slim majority, if, if not a better majority than they had in 2016, um, which would be good. At worst, they can rely on Bob Catter. Bob Catter, no. The Liberal Party had massive swings in regional seats and in mining seats. Even in the New South Wales safe Labor seat of Hunter, um, the Liberal Party is within striking or the nat- are within striking distance of 
Joel Fitzgibbon, who's a long-time Labor member there, because it's a it's a coal seat. Um, One Nation got like 20% of the vote there. So Labor voters are hopping on One Nation and the Nats rather than voting Labor again because they've appealed to this inner-city base. Labor thought that the calculation on Adani, for example, there would be huge gains in Victoria but um, and, 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 you know, they could hold Queensland. That didn't happen. There was a, a tiny swing in Victoria and a massive swing in Queensland. So it, sh- it shows Labor need to move more to the pragmatic centre on this. The Liberal Party doesn't need to float out anywhere. The Liberal Party is one government. So if anything, the Liberal Party should go the other way and support these um, coal workers and coal seats that have given you this massive endorsement. So what are the challenges now for Australia and the IPA? We've spent a lot of time over the last year sort of critiquing ScoMo's you know, leadership and policies. What do we have to look out for now? Well, a, a critique that was made during the campaign was um, Scott Morrison doesn't have much of a third-term agenda. He's got his tax cuts, his income tax cuts, moving the, the bracket, I think, from 43000 to to, to 200000 making that one tax bracket, which I think is good reform. But after that, he doesn't really have an agenda. Um, so um, what we what we can see there is, you know, the IPA has put out an agenda. We put out our 20 ideas to fix Australia. Um, so I think the coal, the coalition could look to some of the IPA's ideas to look to things like you know not doing not going ahead with a divisive referendum to divide Australia by race. Looking at things like fundamental tax reforms, like the income tax powers back to the states, real reform of the federation, um, things like that, and, and and stopping subsidies to renewables. Uh, so there is an agenda there that the IPA has put forward that I think a lot of Liberal Party members now can adopt and say, hey, after this, we should look at things like, you know, privatising the ABC or at least merging the ABC with the SBS um, or privatising Australia Post, some things that'll, that'll bring revenue back to the government uh, in a Liberal way and reduce the size of government. All right, cool. So on Saturday night, we saw two political careers come to, uh, let's say two big political careers come to an end. Well, maybe Bill Shorten comes back, but yeah, Tony Abbott out of politics now and Bill Shorten. So uh, what, what did you make of both of their days and like basically their careers? Well, I think, uh, yeah, in Moringa, obviously Abbott lost. Um, that was hard to see. Uh, it's quite a shame. He's He was a very good local member and a very good historic figure in Australian politics, he led the Liberal Party back into government. I think his speech was quite gracious. He said he'd rather be a loser than a quitter yeah. and go out... I said um, that's an all-time sniper, Turnbull. Yeah. All-time sniper. <laughs> go out fighting for the things he believed in. Um, and, you know, without Tony Abbott pushing against Malcolm Turnbull, would the Liberal Party still be in government right now? I probably don't, don't think so. Yeah. You skillfully avoided James's question before. You described what you did during the day... What did you do to celebrate at night? I went to the uh, to the drinks at Kuyong. Um, where the vibe, what was the vibe like? The vibe was ecstatic. I've never seen so many people at a Liberal Party function um, and people just couldn't believe it. It was really our 1993. We've never had that kind of election where we've won an election and nobody expected us to win. Um, and it was awesome. And I believe uh, James Bolt also showed up as well. Uh, it takes a lot to get me to a Liberal Party event, but I did hear there was free beers and extremely good vibes. So, yeah, I ducked my head in. That was great. Yeah. What about next day? Did the party continue? Uh, I was a bit hungover in the morning, but I... I How sold, did you solve that issue? I, I, sold, I soldiered on and yeah. <laughs> went to a long brunch. If I know Evan Holland, he doesn't let mere things like a hangover get in the way yeah. of having a good time. Good stuff. All right, uh, cool. All right, sorry. 
Start the election campaign. You came on the show. You gave us uh, four predictions that uh, you said this is going to happen. And I got to say, you did pretty damn well, to be honest. Um, so I'll read them out and then we'll go through them one by one. I don't so call them the spinner for nothing. I do not call them the spinner for nothing. So let's go through them one by one. All right. So your first prediction was uh, the major party candidates will be dumped. Now, we saw a fair few of those. Like we'd already seen some by the time that you already appeared on the show. Um, but yeah, which one was the most incredible dumping? Do we reckon? Um, <laughs> Labor had this candidate. Uh, had this candidate. I think he was like twenty-eight years old. So um, they had this candidate that made all sorts of awful jokes when he was like twenty-three. Yes. Uh, I think this is going to happen more and more with more young people putting their hand up. Yeah. It was like um, he was putting up all these memes, uh, um, uh, making rape jokes, Luke, and then yeah, Luke Creasy. Luke Creasy yeah. is an. He's actually. I'm actually in that electorate. Uh, so <laughs> I was had to. Luckily, I had I had a liberal candidate there that I could vote for. But um, yeah, you had him. You had a lot of coalition candidates. Uh, you had one in the Northern Territory that was dumped, the uh, Senate candidate for Labor. The Labor guy, yeah. Uh, because he was making all sorts of uh, conspiracy theories about Jews being yeah. lizard people. He was a David Ike fan. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and a lot of Liberal <laughs> Party candidates that had you know homophobic comments yeah, yeah. and things like that. And it just kept... Getting drip feeding, and I think the Herald Sun was the best vetter of candidates because they seem to get all the stories about all these yeah. different yeah, there's candidates. So things like uh, how, how, what is the vetting process internally that the Herald Sun spends like two days before they can find everything about well, the guy? Well, I, I think the Liberal Party um, spent a lot of time uh, doing background checks for Section Forty Four issues yeah, exactly. rather than looking through the social media <laughs> yeah. of their yeah. candidates. Hey, say what you will about this guy, but he is definitely an Australian. Yeah. <laughs> I noticed the Greens had a couple. Uh, the, the great guardians of hate speech didn't uh, disendorse a couple of candidates who had said a couple of questionable things, which I thought was pretty hypocritical. There was one in the Northern Territory that called Jacinta Price a coconut, yeah. which is a very offensive term yeah. to call someone a, a, an Indigenous person. Yeah, exactly. Um, and they had a, other candidates around that. Uh, Bloke from Sydney Uni. Yeah, what was what he, was he was. Uh, Oh, how do I describe this? It was very, it was a bit sweary, but he sort of said stuff about Christians, basically. Yeah, and right. and the footage came out of the, well handled uh, during the same sex <laughs> marriage debate. Footage came out of the vote no people having a peaceful protest at Sydney University, and he was calling them all sorts of awful yeah. things. Yeah, yeah. All right, one hundred percent true. All right, let's uh, <laughs> let's go to the next one, which is uh, teal independence will fizzle out. Now I'm giving you another check for that one. Teal independence went one five, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, so Zali Stegall beating Tony Abbott, but the other ones, the famous ones, Oliver Yates, etc. They all went down. So what did you reckon of the teal, teal independence? Yeah, and I said then, you know, this was uh, very transparent in that the green left movement in Australia, you know, the Australian Conservation Foundation, the get-ups, they had abandoned the, the Greens political party as a, as a vehicle for um, power and influence and jumped on these independents that were supposedly soft liberals, you know, liberal on economic uh, issues, but um, really uh, radical uh, climate agenda. You can't be both of those things at the same time. You cannot <laughs> yeah. be both of those things at the same time. I think a lot of liberal voters, or national voters where they ran thought, uh, no, nah, absolutely not. Um, we, we can see what you're doing and we're not copping this. <laughs> and, and, you know, Oliver Yates, who we spoke about last week, he got like 9%. Uh, Julia Banks in uh, Flinders actually got about 15%. Oh, so defecting was a good move. Uh, 15 is <laughs> a good number because her 15 minutes of fame. Yeah, any other independents that you want to talk about? Uh, where else? Did they, oh, there, there was one that ran in Mali um, that got quite a bit of vote, I think, and there was one that ran in Farah that got about 20% of the vote or something. Um, the, the Liberals still won, but the Farah one was less of a, a teal independent and more of a, I'm going to talk about water issues and... And I think it was a big back, backlash against 
Susan Lee, the uh, local member, because she spent time talking about banning sheep exports. It's like you're talking about a, a major industry in your electorate wanting to shut their jobs. Yeah, exactly. All right, uh, we'll move on to another one here. Um, this one I'll give a question mark to. Major party leaders do will do weird things. I, I think we actually got out pretty even on that campaign on major party, like viral mm. moments of major party leaders. Like there was no massive onion one. Yeah, we was spoke, it politicians we, or we, major? You we spoke about at the said time party um, that Shorten applied his sunscreen with his knuckles. Mm. Now was, was that this campaign or was that? Yeah, previous? that was this campaign. Oh, okay, but okay. It, that's it, a big it happened that week. I came in last time. Yeah, that's I a don't. Big I no longer think that's weird. You didn't really? think it at the time. I listened back to the interview this morning. You defended it then, and you're still defending it. Because otherwise, your hands get all sticky. No. I reckon he's Bill Shorten did this thing where um, he, he didn't want to answer questions from certain journalists, and he like... So he started doing the he, sunscreen he, thing again, and was like, oh, put, God, I'm he, out of here. He like put up his hand at the journalist and was like, eh, and the little <laughs> buddy just grabbed that footage and was just like rolling with it. Like, yeah, that's eh. a gif right there. It was really weird. All right, so, okay, well, I'm changing that to a tick. So it's only three for three ticks, and the last one you said... And I can't even give you a cross for this because literally everyone got it wrong. You said Labor would win, but it's going to be a lot closer than people think, which to be honest is like the closest anyone got. No one saw this coming. Um, So I'm going to give you uh, just a... Five. Yeah. Nah, there's Point no five. participation award. You got it wrong. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Pete, where we, all right, so you got terribly wrong. I got a free cheeseburger from Macca's or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Could, um, could I, I don't know, I know we're getting late, but one more question. The internal polling of the parties had a new, they knew it was going to be really close, didn't they? That's what the Yeah, I think, and, and both parties in the end, like, like, you could see from the polling that it was actually, the trend it was getting closer. I think the, the major parties knew a lot more than than the polling How? suggests. Um, because they, they can do track polls, which are just automatic polls in different electorates. And so the electorate by electorate race was much tighter, and both parties were saying this is going to be basically 151. Uh, margin like local campaigns rather than a national message. The prime minister on the day was in Braddon in Tasmania, in northern Tasmania, which I think showed the Liberals were really confident about that seat. Let's send the prime minister down. This is a seat we can win off Labor, and um, that was uh, uh, unexpected that a prime minister would not be in their home state for the entirety of the election. He actually went to a different state, so. Um, no one saw it coming. No one saw the extent of the swing. One thing that was a kind of predictor about Queensland was Bob Brown's uh, convoy throughout the country, the Stop Adani convoy, and it went through a town called Clermont, which is the closest town to Adani, mm. and they got absolutely run out of town and the local pubs and businesses said they wouldn't serve them. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, they had to like set up their own camp because no hotel would, would accommodate them. Yeah. Um, and they had, they had like, at a town of like 5,000 people, they had like 1,000 people there. Um, and that seat uh, voted eighty percent to Ellen. That that town voted eighty percent to the <laughs> LNP. Yeah, right. Uh, it's almost as if Adani is actually popular once once you leave the inner city suburbs. Absolutely. All right, Evan. Thanks so much for all your work for this podcast over the election campaign. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, yeah, we'll have you back on soon enough. So thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Right. Same up. Okay, thank you to Evan Mulholland and Tyler Cowan for those interviews. All right, so we're now, like, this has been a long show. There's mm. been a whole lot of election coverage, so we are going to absolutely fly through this because, uh, yeah, we've got to get out of here very quickly. So we no know mucking you, around. We know you guys are busy, Pete. Yeah, no mucking around, Pete. I'm going to ban you from mucking around. Well, and ban myself, all right? I'm a good person like that. I'll get my game face on. Yeah, all right. I would I would actually count all this as mucking around. This is, this is endless babble and nonsense, waffle. and we should move on. <laughs> we should move on right now. Yep. No more baffle and nonsense. Okay. nonsense. Uh, all right, uh, let us uh, kick us off, Pete. What have you seen this week? Well, 
what might be called by some more cynical than me as to be a cynical move from Rugby Australia, they put out their press release about... So it's cynical as a cynical move? Cynical cynical. to recognise the cynicism. You have to be cynical to recognise the cynicism because Rugby Australia put out their thing on Friday night about Israel Folau getting the sack for his... uh, Famous Instagram post, which you all know about. Yeah. I won't go through that. Fantastic news dump move to do it late on Friday night, day before the election. That's right. No one's paying attention. That's when me and James put out all our bad news. Yeah, just, we fight him. Yeah. Move on. (laughs) Yeah, exactly right. Uh, So, obviously, he got the sack. Now, he will, he's got till 3 p.m. today, which is Monday. So, as I said, we're recording on Monday to say whether or not he's going to appeal um, this move. But, yeah, no, he got the sack. So, that's the story. Yeah. They're the latest developments. Yeah, it's fascinating. And, like, it kind of bleeds into... Because Scott Morrison was asked, like, do gay people go to hell in the lo- like, like last week of the election? <laughs> and it's just like, no one cares. Like, does anyone really... Like, did anyone... I, I maintain, did anyone's day fully get ruined by the fact that Israel Folau thinks this stuff? Like, does anyone, like, really... I, I've seen a lot of fake outrage and a lot of like sports journalists say, how can he possibly say this? What I haven't seen is like, you know, I thought of Israel Folau this way and now I can't even see him pick up a ball without vomiting in rage. Well, yeah, potentially, I don't know, like maybe maybe young gay people who are rugby fans or whatever might be affected by it. But I think in general, you know, yeah, he's, he's like a rugby player. To the point player. where it's like he should have been fired. Like I, yeah, I, exactly, I can exactly. never watch another game of rugby again. I think what he said was stupid and, and don't think it's true. And but apparently um, I'm going to hell. Yeah, well, on, yeah. On numerous counts, I'm going to hell. Same. I, I sort of character. I sort of um, qualify for a couple of those categories. Yeah, yeah. But, um, uh, but well, um, I'm, I'm going to get a penthouse apartment in hell if Israel Folau is correct. <laughs> I'm like, not sure that's how how it works, James. I think but I'm um, getting the mezzanine. All right, I'm getting my own butler and my own private elevator. The thing is, the the thing is that this kind of stuff really does. I mean, a lot of um, so we saw a lot of the Polynesian rugby players, you know, there's talk there was going to be a player boycott. A lot of them came out in support of him. Yeah. Other players said, you might, you might as well. So this guy, Teniela Tupo, sorry if I said that wrong, uh, said, you might as well sack me and all the other Pacific Island rugby players around the world because they have the same Christian beliefs. So you've got this kind of, you know, a lot of ethnic minorities have much more conservative views around yeah. this stuff than than the rest of Australia. And, um, you know, it's, it's hard to sort of... What's the word? Compromise, not compromise. I, I have a solution. Things. I have a solution. Okay. Hit As me. a society, I've said this before on the podcast. Here's okay. my solution. As a society, we stop caring what sports people think about politics. Well, I mean, obviously we can find it interesting, yeah. but we stop actually having our moods affected by it. Well, certainly not all sports persons. People. I think all sports <laughs> persons. Sports people. Yeah. you gotta, you got to prove that you're really smart and interesting before we start to care. Uh, yeah, okay. I'll allow that, <laughs> but mainly I'm just saying... I don't care. Anyway, so we'll see what happens with that. Yes. Because uh, he, he might appeal. All right, I got one for you guys. So um, this is an interesting thought experiment. Uh, well, not the thought. Well, it's going to be a real experiment. It's an, it's <laughs> an experiment experiment. Exper- actual experiment. Uh, but basically, okay, so the state of Idaho in the US has a big regulatory code. Now, deregulation is a huge thing in the world at the moment. Mm. Obviously, you've got the Trump to uh, one in, two out rule and all these other things that are happening. So... This is basically that principle on bath salts or on whatever, bath salts. On whatever uh, gigantic drug you want, steroids, whatever. But yeah. they, like Idaho are resetting their entire regulatory code on the idea that any regulations that they actually need will be reintroduced. That's right. But it's a way to get rid of all the dead regulations that only exist to slow things down and to protect incumbent businesses. They're the ones that are going to bite the dust. Well, yeah, it's kind of a weird thing they've got in Idaho. At the end of every year, they have to reauthorize all their their whole 
regulatory code and yeah. they had and normally that's just sort of passed through as a kind of convention but this year the legislature wrapped up an acrimonious centra, uh, session in april without passing a rule authorization rule reauthorization bill so as a result uh come Jan- January, july 1 some 8200 pages of regulations will expire yeah so that's why it's an experiment because we don't know what's going to happen probably it's going to be all fine and the regulations that you actually need will be reintroduced swiftly yeah and you know five years later people are going to go wasn't there that regulation that you know x needed to happen before y and no one realized that it was gone because you didn't need it and suddenly all these companies can just you know employ more people and start business ventures and stuff like that there's all uh, these people braiding hair without a license. Yeah, yeah. How, how can we let that happen? Yeah. Um, so it'll be interesting. Uh, there's a lot of jobs that, you know, are going to hit the dust because, yeah. you know, a lot of companies do have to hire people. That's sole job is to comb through. Compliance. Yeah, compliance. So that'd be interesting to see, but I reckon it's going to work out pretty well for them. That's right. Our argument is that the job gains from re- deregulation outweigh the job losses, but yes. uh, we'll keep in touch with this because we'll see how it goes over the period. So yeah, we'll, so. We'll, that, it'll, that is fascinating. We'll give so, you plenty of uh, Idaho updates. Uh, all right. And then last but certainly not least, Pete, you saw a pretty good tweet. So I saw a tweet from Mark, Mark Stefano, media and politics reporter for BuzzFeed UK, who tweeted last week, new, in email to staff, The Guardian says it's changing the style guide. Style guide's one way of putting it. When reporting on climate change. So this is a leaked email from The Guardian. They wrote, we've recently been reviewing the language we use in our coverage of the environment and whether we, we use terms that accurately reflect the phenomena they describe. The phase climate change, for example, sounds rather passive and gentle when what sci- scientists are talking about is a catastrophe for humanity. Increasingly, climate scientists and organisations from the UN to the Met are changing their terminology. So I'll give you some examples of the terminology they're t- talking about. Use climate emergency, crisis or breakdown instead of climate change. Use global heating, global heating instead of global warming. Use wildlife instead of bi- biodiversity. I don't really get that one. Use fish populations instead of fish stocks. And the, the kicker for me, use climate science denier or climate, den- or climate denier instead of climate skeptic. My big takeaway with this is who wasn't already adhering to this? Yeah, I know. Like, <laughs> who flicked through the Guardian and goes, hmm, you guys could really ramp up the alarmism yeah, a little bit. It's not alarmist enough. Yeah. So look, that's really interesting. I mean, the Guardian such an important broadsheet newspaper that it gives us the truth about the world yeah. and doesn't exaggerate anything. So I'm shocked by this. Can I also like, you know, there's the serious points to be made, but also global heating sucks. Like really you had a meeting and you decided it was global heating. It sounds like everyone's got a heater. Yeah, exactly. I, I just thought like, hmm, it is getting a bit chilly around here. Like you need, like we had global warming and then things got colder. So it got changed to climate change. So mm. you could say that anything was climate change. Mm. But global heating brings you back to square one and doesn't sound as cool as global warming. Yeah, I agree. I yeah. think they need to rethink that one. And um, yeah. Yeah, just, just say apocalypse. Just yeah, say anything apocalypse. Anything is like, oh, and you know, the coming apocalypse and the apocalypse that we are all... Like, yep. if you want to really get people clicking on your articles, just say apocalypse. And apocalypse enablers. Yes, apocalypse enablers. And uh, any, like, instead of climate science deniers, it should just be four horsemen. Or, or murderers. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, tyrants, so. tyrants, murderers, uh, dictators, just any of those. So something for the Guardian to work with there. Yeah. So bring us in, like, just bring us in for a, a good Guardian. Uh, we'll sit all your journalists down, just talk about alarmism. I think Peter and I will eat a cupcake. I hope that cupcakes are provided at this meeting and, uh, we'll, 
we'll tell you how things should be. Happy to help. Happy to help. All right, that is it for the show this week. Thanks again to Evan Mulholland and Tyler Cowan for those interviews. Uh, make sure you're downloading and subscribing to not only this podcast, but also the IPA's Looking Forward podcast and telling friends and family about it. Anyone that you know that cares about politics, uh, tell them about the shows, get them subscribing, available on all good podcast platforms. And if you are listening through the website, make sure, uh, you know, great. Thank you for listening through the website. But it's so much better for you and easier for us if you are listening through a podcast platform. So just make us part of your feed. Uh, it's all good. And make sure you're leaving us a five-star review if you are listening through Apple Podcasts or iTunes. really helps us bring uh, new people to the show, which is awesome. Uh, and uh, if you are already a member of the IPA, that's awesome. If you're not, go to ipa.org.au slash join. We've got three different membership packages that you can buy. Sign up now and become part of the IPA's leading voice. Uh, sorry, become part of the leading voice for freedom in Australia. Man, Nina was so much better at this <laughs> than I am. Uh, so, Nina, come back. We miss you. Uh, we need you. <laughs> desperately. Uh, so, yeah, make sure you go on ipa.org.au slash join. Become part of the Australia's le- leading voice for freedom. Become part of a growing community. And uh, if you are already a member, make sure you're donating. Go to uh, at IPA. You can donate and, uh, you know, help the IPA become even bigger. All right, cool. See you guys next week. Stay up. You're